Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Young conductors, conductors just starting out, and those who are studying conducting. You may want to know that I have a whole set of podcast interviews that you may find very interesting. This new series includes interviews with the chief executive of a major British orchestra, the chief executive of a major agency, the leader of a major UK orchestra, plus other orchestral musicians, including next month my interview with Fergus McWilliam, horn player with the Berlin Philharmonic. If you want to hear their views on what it takes to become a great conductor, you can when you subscribe for just £5 a month over on patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. For this small amount each month, you get these interviews plus much more. Details are in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Italian conductor who won the 1985 Toscanini Conductors' Competition and has had a truly international career ever since. He's probably best known for his two stints as music director of Welsh National Opera, where he is now conductor laureate. It's a real pleasure to welcome Carlo Rizzi. Carlo, lovely to talk to you today. How are you? Hi, I'm very fine. I'm here in Italy in my house. Um, relaxing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose we've all been doing a lot of relaxing recently. Um, you were telling me that uh, most things have been cancelled now through until Christmas. Have you worked at all since lockdown? Well, um, I had the dubious honour in March to conduct the last performance of Welsh National Opera before everything went into lockdown. Mm. And since then, uh, actually, the vast majority of my work should have been uh, in, uh, in America. Uh, at the Met first, then in Chicago. Uh, between that, I should have gone to La Scala, but that was, uh, you know, the height of COVID. And now in this moment, I actually should be at the Met again. Mm. And uh, everything has been obviously cancelled. Well, in a way, considering that is America, um, maybe it's better not to be there because, uh, as you know, the infection there is very high. Mm. I have been able to do a couple of things uh, when uh, Italy came out from the first lockdown around uh, June, July. I conducted actually one of the first opera performances in Italy in Florence. We did it in concert form, uh, was Ballet Maschera, and uh, it was. It was great. It was really great. I didn't think, honestly, after nearly 40 years of career, that it would have been so enjoyable <laughs> to start to conduct again. Mm. And the same thing was uh, uh, shared also with the orchestra, with the chorus. They really, really wanted to do it. And with the public, I have to say. Yeah. The regulation in Italy allowed it about 400, 500 people in what would have been a 2,000-seat capacity. And... Um, it was it was great, but of course it's not like it is normal. No, no. Well, at least there, there there seems to be an appetite for it growing over the months, and so as many people you know who are allowed to go will go. And I think that you know as as numbers grow of the the allow as numbers grow of the amount of audience allowed, I think we'll have no problem filling those seats because I think people are hungry yeah. for it. Uh, I think they really yeah, exactly. are. Exactly. Uh, you said you've had a over a forty year career. How did it start? When did music first come into your life? Uh, you're born and raised in Milan, I think. Yes, I was born and raised in Milan. I first of three children. My parents were not uh, musical. My father was a chemist. My mother was an accountant. Um, and uh, I was, uh, as I say, the first one. And uh, since quite early, they started to add the 
before elementary school, you know, in uh, kindergarten, there was some of these uh, teachers that were giving some lesson on piano. And, um, well, evidently, you know, it's funny because I don't remember anything of this. Uh, all this uh, I know through my parents that told me. And uh, they decided to send me to this uh, because uh, I was very introverted and they thought that this could uh, wake me up to the world. And actually it did <laughs> because I started to play piano and it was clear that, uh, um, you know, I liked it and I had some qualities. Uh, I mean, I was not Mozart, uh, you know, uh, but uh, I just liked it and they went on and on. And since then, the only thing that I remember when I was about 10, 11, 12, you know, that was the moment where in Italy at the time, in the education system, you would have had to decide if you were going to do music, if you wanted to, do, to, to go to the conservatorio mm -hmm. or doing it in another way. Now, going to the conservatorio at the time meant that uh, what for us was the medium school that here in the UK would have been the first three years of secondary school would have been done also in the conservatorio. And my parents were not uh, uh, happy about this because, uh, you know, for them music was uh, like a alien career. <laughs> so they said, uh, if you want to do music, great, but you do it as, as something plus. Yes. after school so you do school and then you do the rest and actually the tears I, I, I thank them for, for this because uh, um, I have a much more broader um, you know cultural bringing ahead that if I would have gone only at the conservatorium this of course you know, is the way that was at the time in Italy mm. now it's different and uh, so I had these two parallel schools the normal school I did a classic studies uh, you know, Latin, Greek, history, philosophy, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then I started, well, I was studying piano. Then uh, I started to study uh, oboe a little bit. Then uh, composition, then conducting. Mm. And this went on until when I, then I graduated in piano, composition, and then conducting when I was, uh, uh, don't remember, I think in 19, 20, 21, something like that. I did mm. it in three years. And then, uh, um, well, uh, you know, first I, I won some small competition as a pianist, uh, and I played a lot of chamber music that I really loved, uh, also with my brother, that is actually a concert violinist. Um, and then I got drawn more into conducting. Um, uh, and so then I started to do also there some competitions. And... Uh, but the funny thing was that uh, <laughs> when I graduated, suddenly I discovered that uh, I didn't know anything at all about conducting. Because, <laughs> no, I tell you how it happened. Um, as I say, I was uh, you know, quite good at the piano. And uh, I started, uh, I had been asked to work uh, at La Scala as a repetitor uh, with Mazel. Mm. Now, Mazel, you know, great conductor. Some people like this, some people don't. Uh, uh, what I ad was admiring of him was the incredible technical skills that he had. Mm. 
and the baton, the hearing. I mean, it was fantastic the way that he was rehearsing with the orchestra. But the funny thing is that I discovered that watching what he was doing with the orchestra, either he was wrong or I was wrong in what I've been told <laughs> to do. I decided quite, quite uh, clearly that I was the wrong one. Yes. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, chances are. And so I started to find a way to, you know, to study again. To, mm. So I, I had the possibility uh, in Italy, there was a Russian conductor that is not very well known, but actually was a very, very good teacher, Vladimir Delman. Mm. He escaped uh, the, you know, the Russian communist regime. And uh, he, he had, had a quite a good career in Italy. And um, so he was doing a course, uh, actually, uh, about uh, conducting opera. Mm. And uh, so I went to study with him. Uh, and we were 20, 25 in this course. Uh, and it was hard. It was really hard because... Uh, he, <laughs> he was uh, um, uh, like, uh, you know, the old uh, patriarch. Uh, mm. And he was, uh, so his way of teaching, uh, I'm not talking musically, but I'm talking actually psychologically, was like, a, you know, the old grandfather that was telling the young guy, you are wrong. Yes. Uh, so, but I learned really, really a lot from him. What was he teaching you? Was he... Was it an overall approach, a holistic approach to learning the opera scores as well as stick technique, or was he mainly talking? Well, to let me tell you yeah. the first lesson. The first lesson was actually very, very interesting. So I, so there was this 24, 25 people. We had a, an admission exam. You know, we went in front of the orchestra conductor, something. So you already had an idea. So here we are, the first lesson, 24 people. Buongiorno, buongiorno. Say, so who is coming out today? By the way, the piece was the preludio of uh, um, Aida. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not the preludio, after the preludio, when, uh, when the music started with Ramfis and Radames. And it was with two pianos. There was mm -hmm. no orchestra. So obviously nobody volunteered. <laughs> said, uh, Carlo, you. Okay, I go out. And I start to conduct. It's very simple, 4-4. Four, mm -hmm. four, Celli divisi, nothing special. So I start one, tirare. No, it stops me. <laughs> okay, say, uh, okay, try again. Amen. Do the same thing. No. And at the point, I thought, what? I say, well, what is wrong? I said. And then he started to sing and to say, who is playing? I said, well, are the violoncelli divisi in three? Okay. Conduct now. And I thought, ah, the violoncelli are at the right of the orchestra, so I have to turn to the right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I started that. No. Oh my God. Again. So he's asked, who is singing? Well, uh, you know, Radames, uh, sorry, Ramp is first, and Radames, etc., uh, etc. Et Please conduct. No, again. Anyway, he went on for about 40 minutes like this. And then slowly, uh, he let out what, uh, what he wanted. He wanted, you know, I was just conducting technically. Yes. He wanted that already from the first one, 
there was the feeling of this dark sound of the celli divisi, of the fact that Radames, uh, sorry, the Dramphis is the grand sacerdote, you know, is the high priest and yes. had this power. Of, so basically what he wanted to express was not that it is in 4-4, but uh, all the drama that was in the score. Mm. And this is something that I actually... Uh, have not been told, you know, during during my years at the conservatorio, and uh, and for me it was a big uh, a big uh, surprise shock. Yes. Apart from the shock of being out there for forty minutes, being stopped every <laughs> two seconds, but that was uh, something that I always bring with me because uh, because it was right, and mm. this is what actually conducting is. So that was the first thing. It's actually interesting because uh, from the point of view of the of the technique, the actual technique, uh, it, it was not bothered so, so much, but he really uh, was absolutely uh, ferocious if uh, people were just, you know, going along, just moving their hands. Mm, mm. And that for me was a, was a, was a big lesson. Um, and then after this, I, um, well, then I did what a lot of conductors were doing at the time uh, to go uh, to Siena, to mm. the Academia Chigiana, and uh, Franco Ferrara, the famous Franco Ferrara, was, was teaching them. And, you know, I thought, yeah, fine, let's go. You know, I will never be taken in. But uh, I was, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh, that year, actually, the only Italian. And again, was the same kind of experience. Uh, you know, Ferrara. Um, everybody says the Ferrara was a great, great teacher. Um, depends what you mean, because uh, Ferrara was was not uh, teaching in the normal way for the very simple reason that he had all these qualities uh, from day one of his life. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. I had the luck to see him conduct for five minutes. Mm. And, you know, there was a sort of uh, stories of urban legends. Uh, when Ferrara conducts, the sound of the orchestra changes. Uh, of course, Ferrara can know everything from memory. Uh, this or uh, that. And I was relatively skeptical about all this. Mm. Actually, um, I, <laughs> I experimented with my own eyes uh, because there was a colleague in the course that was conducting and uh, uh, well, it was not great uh, and Ferrara at a certain point, uh, without saying a word, just standing on his feet I went behind him this guy didn't even notice that he was there and Ferrara started to conduct from behind him mm. and then the guy noticed that something was different because <laughs> the orchestra was doing other things, so he sort of went away and Ferrara remained there conducting uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this five minutes, uh, really, I understood uh, <laughs> what conducting is. Mm, what it a was. I, I cannot express it, you know, with word. But it was there. It was just impossible, absolutely impossible, not to know what to do mm. with this hand. By the way, he was half paralyzed, so he was oh. conducting with his left because he had a stroke with with his right. Didn't make any difference. He was conducting, actually, this is a funny story, with the, he, he had a brush 
the painting brush rather than a conducting baton. You know, very short, uh, taken on the other side. You know, it was the taking the um, holding the the brush by the um, by the the bristles. Yeah, yeah. by the brush in the bristle. But uh, you know, it was the I do, <laughs> I do remember was the Ebertus of Mendelssohn, mm. the the overture, and. Uh, you know, when he finished with this pianissimo, with this flute going up, and then there are the two pizzicati of the strings that, yes. as you know, for experience, pizzicati are complicated to do. Yeah, yeah. There was no way that anybody could go wrong with that. Even a blind person could have <laughs> gone down with his bit. And, uh, and this is not just technique. This is uh, come with me and do this because mm. this is the way to do it. And this for me, you know, this has been my two really big uh, experience that I had in my life, Vladimir Derman and Franco Ferrara, that form uh, what I believe, you know, conducting, conducting is, yeah. and, uh, but was after the conservatorio. <laughs> Um, at this point, you've spoken almost exclusively about opera, obviously being an Italian, that's important. Um, and if you look at your career, it's, you've obviously most of the jobs that you've had, including Welsh National Opera, which we'll come to later, have been in opera. Were you also doing symphonic work around this time or was because you'd gone through La Scala and been a repetiteur and then, um, you know, where you were, was opera the main thing at this point in your career? Personally, I was doing more concert than opera at the time, yeah. and uh, and even now, you know, over the years, uh, I've always done a lot of concert. The point is that, as you say, <clears throat> holding a position as music director uh, for, for an or, of an opera company obviously goes in that direction. Yes. But I think that both for me, I really enjoy both, and I think that for me, both uh, parts uh, are important uh, to different phases of the same art of conducting well i mean before we go on to opera this was a question i was going to ask later but i may as well ask it now because we're in this topic for you in a perfect year you know pre-covid or post-covid <laughs> imagine in a perfect year what percentage of the time would you hope to be doing opera and what percentage of the time would you hope to be doing non-opera symphonic work well you see um I would actually change the question, uh, uh, not what percentage of the time, mm. because obviously when you do to go a symphonic concert in one week is done and dusted. Yes. <laughs> when you do an opera in one week, you have not even started. In a <laughs> no, way. no, exactly. Yeah. So I would say, uh, uh, actually, I think that in, in an year I do as a number of projects, uh, more concert than operas mm. yes. but of course uh, in terms of time you're right maybe are uh, i don't know let's say two months of concert and uh, nine months of opera yeah, uh, yeah. but it's not because uh, there are many many more operas it's just because uh, it's a different timing uh, um, that you that you need to set apart yeah, obviously, when we when you work in opera, the lead-in time, the amount of rehearsal time that you have going from early piano rehearsals and then rehearsals with the director uh, and then cast rehearsals and then zitz probe and interfer performances takes an awful lot longer than, as you say, a week's symphonic work. It can be done in three days. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
but I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the uh, you know the study time to learn a symphonic concert is you know it's still a long time for three days work. Whereas you know, oh, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. And yeah. Uh, the, the, from the point of view, it's also a different way of studying because mm. uh, obviously there are certain things when you study a, a symphonic score is just you and the score. Mm. When you study um, an opera, yeah, obviously there is you and the score, but there are so many different uh, variables, uh, even during the study time, you know, about, uh, uh, you can have your idea of how do things, but then of course you have to think which kind of singer you have for the, for the role. Uh, you know, if he's a heavy singer, uh, with a heavy voice uh, or a singer with a lighter voice, uh, I think it would be uh, counterproductive uh, mm. to just uh, use one size fits all <laughs> in the way that you study. Because, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I mean, you're not going to drive uh, a Cinquecento in the same way that you drive a Porsche. It's, uh, <laughs> it's different, uh, different ways. And so even uh, already when I'm studying an opera, I always think about uh, uh, the voices that I have to, to work with. And this is something that you don't necessarily do when you, when you study a symphonic score. So it's a different kind, uh, it's a different way of studying, but obviously uh, it takes a, a lot of time for, uh, for both. And sometimes there are some incredibly intricate uh, symphonic, uh, symphonic scores. I mean, mm. you know, and, but for example, uh, just to, to mention, you know, one symphonic score and, uh, uh, and, and an opera, Stravinsky, when I conduct uh, the Rite of Springs, obviously it, the kind of work that you put in, uh, as you know, is re very, very serious. Mm -hmm. And I, when I done of Stravinsky, actually the Reich's progress, I found it much, much clearer, much easier. Of course, it's a different kind of Stravinsky, it's much yes. more neoclassical. Mm -hmm. um, but so it depends also um, sometimes from the kind of uh, piece that you're, uh, that, that you're studying. But obviously, yeah, the first thing is that you have to study it. Mm. I mean, it's never a good idea to go on the podium without knowing the score. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible idea. Um, it, one of my l last questions at the end is about score study. So I'll leave it where it normally sits in the podcast yeah. and go to 1985, uh, which is when you win the Toscanini Conductors Competition. Can you remember what the format was, how many rounds you had to do? And after winning that competition, how was life for you? Did it make a sudden difference to your career? Um, did you, in you know, modern day competitions, you know, often the, the prize is sort of 30 concerts with 30 different orchestras and a, yeah. and a cash prize. What, what was the prize then and how did it impact your life? Well, um, that competition was actually a, a very particular competition because uh, it was... Uh, based on the six symphonies of Tchaikovsky oh, okay. and Falstaff. Mm. So uh, what we did uh, at the beginning of the competition, it was a longer, it went on for about one month and a half yeah. because at the beginning there was a big selection. Uh, first on titles, uh, you know, pieces of paper, recording, whatever. And then from that, uh, there has been uh, about, I would say, 20, 25, maybe 30 that have been chosen to do, um, uh, no, actually more, must have been around 40, 50, to do uh, 
the usual seven minutes with the orchestra. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And from that, we went down to about seven, mm. six, seven, eight, I don't remember. At that point, we had one month, one month and a half to prepare to perform uh, both the symphonies uh, and to study uh, and fall stuff yeah. with actually this Vladimir Delman that I was telling you. Mm. And at the end of this, uh, there was the competition. Mm. Each one of us, uh, actually three people has been chosen. So there must have been a, a now another level, let's say, because at the end, uh, three people has been chosen each one conducting one act of Falstaff and yeah. one symphony of uh, of Tchaikovsky. And did you know which Tchaikovsky symphony, or was was that sprung on you as a surprise? No, no. it was a surprise, yeah. and uh, we need to know to know all Falstaff and all the six symphonies of Tchaikovsky. Yeah. I mean, it didn't happen five minutes before; it happened like <laughs> I don't know, one week, five days, yeah. something like that. It was actually very interesting because. Uh, allowed uh, us, uh, the competitors, uh, and those of the orchestra, you know, really to know each other and to, to work with it rather than just going there and boom, goodbye, uh, as yes. very often happens in, uh, in, uh, in competition. About the second part of your question, what did change in your life? Um, I actually, yes, from that moment, I started to work really professionally because before I was conducting, but was also teaching piano. And yeah. from that moment, uh, I, I finished. At the time, my career was only in Italy. I've never been uh, to conduct uh, elsewhere else. Well, if you exclude, uh, <laughs> I, ar I arrived uh, second in the competition in Besançon two oh, years yes. before. Mm. So technically, that is France. So, <laughs> um, and so it started actually with a lot of concerts, uh, yeah. you know, with a medium-sized orchestra, and uh, and then some operas, uh, and then what happened actually? Well, it was the beginning of my international career. Uh, it was in the UK, mm. and this was a couple of years later, maybe three years later. In '88, at the Buxton Festival. Yes. In uh, actually, this is a very interesting story. Um, <clears throat> I was conducting in Palermo, like one year before, two years before. I don't remember even what I was conducting, <laughs> but I do remember that uh, um, the repetitor in Palermo was actually a British lady. Mm. And she told me one day, um, oh, tonight, uh, today is coming a friend of mine, a soprano, British soprano, because we are rehearsing for a concert. So this person, the soprano, came to the performance uh, and he met, ciao, ciao, how are you, blah, blah, end of that. Then, one year later, the telephone rings and uh, is this uh, agent, British agent, saying, uh, hi, I'm a British agent. I would like to know if you are free to conduct uh, in Buxton. Uh, there's not a lot of money, but it's a good experience, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. you know, at the time, I, I thought, uh, fine, um, I will accept. Uh, I will do it. Uh, my first experience uh, outside Italy. 
a little bit frightening because uh, I have not studied uh, English at school. I studied mm. German. Yeah. So my English was uh, seriously limited. <laughs> um, but I went there. It was a great experience. The orchestra was the Manchester Camerata. We clicked immediately. And uh, it, it was a great success. You know, mm. uh, on the back of that, uh, the first night there was uh, Paul Findlay, that was the opera director at the Covent Garden at the time, and invited me at Covent Garden. So, you know, it was not bad after one performance. That's no, good. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, I do remember asking my agent, I said, uh, look, uh, you know, I never know. Um, you just called me and uh, asked me if I wanted, but how have you heard of me? Because, mm. and this said, well, I represent this soprano. Yes. And uh, she told me that she saw you and uh, she told me that you're very good and they trusted her judgment. Right. And uh, um, so this is, uh, this is how it started. And, uh, oh God, should I say the name of the soprano? Uh, yes, let's say the name of the soprano. Yeah. Leslie Garrett. Oh, no. yes, yeah. So I basically, <laughs> all my, <laughs> the beginning of my international career to Leslie Garrett. Well, how nice and, and well done, Leslie. Um, don't you think often though that that's, that's the best way of, of, getting work is when it's done on word of mouth when a player maybe guesting in an orchestra or conducting goes back to their home orchestra and says hey i worked last week with you know this orchestra and the guy conducting was superb and then so you know you're then booked to go to his own home orchestra when it's done like that rather than sort of the classic way of agents ringing people up and saying hey i've got this conductor he's really really good when it comes from players or from singers like leslie garrett it means a little bit more, and I think managers take a more willing to take a risk when, when they've got oh, personal re recommendations. But you, yeah. you are absolutely right because, uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was a music director uh, of English uh, of uh, Welsh National Opera. Of course, uh, uh, I received a lot of uh, faxes, email, mm. CDs uh, from many agents about mm. uh, many singers, and very often uh, um, you don't take that into consideration, but not because, uh, uh, you know, we are particularly mean, mm -hmm. because, uh, I mean, if you follow up every person that writes, uh, is not enough a lifetime. No. So, uh, obviously, then, uh, as you rightly say, if you meet a, a, a person that you trust from the music point of view, mm -hmm. and this person say, hey, I heard X, just go to listen, it's really yeah. great. Yeah. Obviously, you trusted more. Mm. And I think, actually, that the importance, uh, personally, of an agent, uh, a good agent, is not the one that uh, sort of sells everybody in the same way, but uh, uh, that actually know uh, and get a reputation of being able to be trusted. Mm. Because, uh, you know, there are certain agents that you know that they actually do understand. Yes. There are certain that you know that are on the booking agency mm. and there is a there, there is a big difference but definitely i trust uh, you know i have people that i trust musically and if they tell me this person is good i trust them much more than any three pages curriculum <laughs> that they have done everything under the sun
Well, you just mentioned the the big job in your career when you look on Wikipedia or on your own website is music director of Welsh National Opera. You two stints as, as music director, 92 to 2001, and then 2004 to 2008. And since 2015, you're conductor laureate. You've just given us a snapshot of what it's like to be the music director of a, an opera company with, you know, endless CVs, CDs, uh, faxes, phone calls, letters, book my singer, book my conductor. What's it like running an opera company like that? Um, how involved do you get in every year's repertoire, um, in, in choosing who conducts when you're not conducting? What, what What's the role? It's a very complicated question because... Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> different uh, no but it's a very very interesting and good question because many conductors take the same role in different ways mm. yeah, there's not the right or wrong ways but I'm talking for myself uh, when I became music director in British National Opera uh, the first thing that uh, I wanted to do was uh, to take the job seriously now, for me, taking the job seriously is not the only somebody that conducts more than the others that comes with the job, mm. but it was actually to take the responsibility and the guidance of the musical part of Welsh National Opera in that case. I've not said anything new here, but the thing was that because of the way that Welsh National Opera was working uh, with uh, at the time three sort of mini season every year, no. Mm. I immediately understood <clears throat> that it was not possible the presence uh, to make a mark, an impact uh, in Welsh National Opera was not like uh, another orchestra or another opera theater. I, I needed uh, much more time mm. because, uh, you know, just follow me a second here. If, uh, if you, uh, I don't know, rehearse from September to middle of October, and you rehearse uh, two operas, so they do three operas, no? You rehearse one or two. And then from middle October to December, you have to do the performances. Uh, this was the, the way of working with WNO because it's a touring company. That means uh, that basically in, you have been there for three months. Mm -hmm. Now, three months, four months, uh, is what uh, a, a music director does generally in an orchestra or in another theater. But there... It was not enough because if you do only this, that means that you basically are working with the orchestra, with the chorus, only once a year. Yes. Because now, while uh, with an opera that has uh, more of a, a repertoire, uh, obviously with the same amount of time, you would have worked uh, more pieces. Yes. And as you know very well, the real work of the musical director, the conductor is during the rehearsals, yeah. not so much during the performances. And so that meant uh, for me that I had to take the decision to give a lot of time uh, on the year on Welsh National Opera. And it meant also for me the decision of going to live in Wales yeah. because, uh, because of this. So this was the first, the first thing that has been uh, um, in a way, defining my life, not only in musical terms, but also in personal terms. Because uh, I can tell you, uh, moving uh, uh, when I was 30 or 32, from Italy to Wales, uh, <laughs> it was a little bit of a cultural <laughs> difference, let's say. Yes. 
apart from the food, the, the, the climate, the, the weather, that's another story. So, you, even, you even learned the language, didn't you? Yeah, that happened <laughs> later, later right. also because uh, then uh, I started a relationship in, uh, in Wales and I had the children, and my children are half Welsh, yeah. half Italian. And uh, <clears throat> I thought it was important uh, um, to, to believe in what Wales was proposing. And yes. part of that is also the language. That is actually a beautiful language. And then uh, um, I, I think that uh, what happened then, um, the real big moment has been when uh, uh, Anthony Freud became uh, uh, general director. And from there, we had uh, quite a lot of years that were actually great because, uh, you see, it's always uh, difficult. Uh, um, you cannot, you know, direct the theater just, single hundred is too big mm. it's too big a job is is impossible um so what worked well between anthony and, and me was the fact that to each other respected the area of the other person yes mm. and uh, this is always the best uh, <clears throat> the best recipe because that means uh, one that the area whichever area is is covered second that there are not uh, uh, problems and conflicts. Mm. So that were really great moment, and there were been great shows. And slowly, 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 also the music level of the company, you know, went up because you need to work at this. Mm. Um, you know, raising a level of an orchestra uh, is not a job of five minutes. <laughs> no, it's a long job because. Is a, is a very long and complicated, also psychologically, because uh, it's almost uh, impalpable. It's not possible to define the work. It just happened day after day, rehearsal after rehearsal, when suddenly, you know, you discover that uh, after rehearsing a lot, uh, a certain blend happens naturally in a certain part of the orchestra, uh, that uh, when you give... Uh, a certain kind of bit, uh, the answer of all the orchestra is the same. Mm. And then at the point, everybody's talking the same language. But again, it's very, it's very long. So they were really very interesting, um, exciting, uh, and in a way also formative years for me. Mm. And um, about uh, you know choosing the singer, choosing uh, directors, choosing conductors. Uh, I always started to, from the point of view that uh, if the theater thrives, uh, I, as artistic, as a music director, I gain personally. Mm -hmm. I never been a person that said, hmm, I don't want this conductor because it's actually too good. <laughs> I know that uh, I know that many, many, many conductors do this. Uh, I was not that kind of person, and uh, I think that is the the right attitude that you need to do if you really want to do the good, uh, the good of the theater. Yeah. Um, about director, obviously, uh, it's more uh, complicated because there you need to to have uh, a a vision of uh, of what you want uh, in terms of the way that you present uh, the the operas to the public, and. Uh, 
you know, at that point uh, is really uh, a, a minefield because <laughs> you can start uh, to think, okay, uh, this director is too innovative, so I don't want it. Uh, this other director, oh, it's very safe. Uh, yes, thank you very much, but then it's boring. Mm. Um, so there are many, many, many things. But, you know, for example, one big thing, uh, um, talking actually also about conductors, uh, you know, we had production uh, of Ansel Gretten with uh, Richard Jones and a very young Yurovsky mm. uh, that, you know, and that was a, was a great success. Uh, and there were two great uh, artists that, uh, that really were working there at Dublino and that helped Dublino. Mm. You need good artists, you need, you need good people. Um, and then singers uh, is the same is the same thing. Uh, also, there is a, there was a, a difference with British National Opera compared to other theaters. You know, the budget of British Opera Company, as you know, is uh, <laughs> less than extends. Yes. <laughs> <It's not Yeah. laughs> and uh, and so there was always an eye on uh, on the fees level. And uh, this is why it was very, it was a lot of work trying to find new artists, yes. uh, uh, promising artists, but also this, uh, you know, we did. And then, of course, there is uh, the other one that I really hated, but it's necessary. You know, the music director very often have to say no for many reasons. Uh, no, this is wrong. No, this is not allowed. No, I cannot give you the day off because you want to go to the to the marriage of the daughter of the baker uh, <laughs> of yeah, the corner. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm joking here, of course, but uh, uh, it's, it's part of your job, you know. <clears throat> but it's part of the job, yeah, yeah. exactly. And this always happens, you know, like in every relationship, I guess, not only in music but also in life. There is the uh, honeymoon period, then uh, <laughs> there is always a dip, mm. and then uh, uh, if you survive the dip, uh, then it's a great relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and yeah, I survived the dip and became a great relationship. In fact, also the reason why I came back, um, that was actually interesting. Uh, I came back because, well, unfortunately, uh, you know, it didn't work out with my successor of the first time, mm. but also um, already in the first years uh, when I came back, I had already a few contracts as uh, what would have been guest artist at the time. Yes. And, uh, and this actually allowed me to do one thing that I really wanted to do, um, that was to open the new Millennium Center. Mm. Because mm. Uh, in my first period, uh, I spent uh, a lot a lot of time, uh, um, you know, pushing, uh, pushing for this. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, I was not the only one. You know, Anthony did a lot. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there the were, uh, you know, the person that now is my wife that was the director of development at the time. You know, she did a lot. Um, a, a lot of people were working very hard. And then, uh, I don't know if you know, if you remember, that was this... Uh, a scheme uh, that there was this competition um, that has been made uh, for ar architectural competition. Yes, that's the... right. Yes, yes, I remember. And uh, the famous architect Zaha Hadid won it. Yes. And, uh, and I met a few times with her, with her team, uh, because it was a very complicated uh, 
um, idea that she had, wonderful. I mean, it would have been definitely, definitely something that the world would have <clears throat> uh, envied to Cardiff. Hmm. It didn't happen also because there was a lot of political uh, um, oppositions, uh, some justified, some definitely very parochial, sorry, but <laughs> this is the truth. Um, and then, uh, then when it started again, you know, with the, the, the Opera House, so-called Millennium Center, but actually the only reason why the theater has been built it was because Welsh National Opera was existing. Mm. I can tell you that if Welsh National Opera was not existing, the Millennium Center would have not been built. So it's better that everybody remembers this, because this mm. is the reason why that building is there standing. Um, so uh, that actually coming back the second time allowed me to um, to open it, and that yeah. was for a great, a great satisfaction. At this point, I asked Carlo about his role with Opera Rara, and specifically how the rare and neglected operas they perform are chosen, who chooses them, and how they decide who might end up singing them. If you want to hear that 10-minute discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. For as little as £5 a month, you can get access to this mini-episode, as well as the previous 11 mini-episodes. You will also get a monthly bulletin podcast from me about my career, as well as advanced news about this podcast. You also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors as well as articles, essays, and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I'd love to see you subscribe to the Supporters Club of A Mic on the Podium very soon. Now, back to my chat with Carlo Rizzi. Carlo, I ask every conductor this because people ask me to, mainly conducting students and conducting geeks. When you come to learn either a, a new opera for Opera Rara or a new symphonic score or whatever school you, you come to learn, do you have a system of learning it? Uh, do you go from big to small or do you start on page one and work your way through? And when you learn a new score, are you a writer of things in your scores? Do you use coloured pencils? Do you have a system, you know, phrase lengths, all of this sort of stuff? The answers are so different every time, fascinating, from some people who write nothing and keep their scores blank and white and virginal to others who, you know, it becomes like a Jackson Pollock painting. How, how do you go about it? Uh, well, actually, in this I'm a little bit Dr. Jack Ingle, Mr. Wright, because uh, uh, both uh, uh, work for me in different yes. situations. I have some scores uh, uh, that uh, uh, are like the <clears throat> you know, like the Arcobaleno, uh, what is called in English? The, um, I forgot now. Uh, you know, like a lot of colors. Um, yes. um, and I have some score that uh, seems that they're come out from the shelf uh, of, a, of a shop. Um, it depends uh, what you're looking for in the score. It depends. Uh, you see, for example, um, if it's a score uh, that I let's assume that I study a new opera of Verdi. No, mm. Something of which I know the style, something uh, that uh, that I know how, sorry, it's a bad phrase, not how it goes. Yes. I generally don't write a lot of things mm. because, uh, because I know it. Because I know what, what not necessarily the score, but 
the way that it goes. But if there is a, a score, for example, you know, when I do uh, a new contemporary piece, mm. uh, then I mark the score a lot. Not because it's more difficult necessarily, but because it helps me to focus my attention on what I think is the thread, the musical thread that you need to, to show or to go through. And that is something that I do for myself. And uh, for me, it's great having the iPad because I can cancel and do it again in another way. You know, yeah. if uh, <laughs> this, when I was doing this with paper and pencil, uh, you know, I had a masses on the arm that was like an enormous bicep <laughs> with all the cancelling, the erasing. Rub, yes, rubbing out. Yeah. 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 Now you can just do it on the iPad, but is uh, and sometimes uh, um, sometimes it depends. Uh, you know, that there is something that uh, I don't know if it happens to you too, but. Uh, there are some points that I actually sort of not forget. I know that they are coming, but they come in a very quirk way, mm. quirky way. And then this is when I really start with big uh, uh, eyes uh, and uh, and uh, you no know, arrows uh, and uh, <laughs> stop uh, <laughs> all different colors like a rainbow. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I write in red. Think exclamation mark quite often on my scores. You know, we, because you can get carried away in a performance, but now and again you really do have to think. What's coming over the page? There's a big absolutely. Change. You might even have to think of a mathematical formula of going from one temper to another. And, you know, I just write yeah, yeah, big yeah, yeah, red yeah. letters, think, across my school. Um, yeah, I, uh, one that I use uh, uh, quite often is uh, calma. You know, <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you get uh, too much uh, um, excited when there is, I don't know, an accelerando or something. And then yes. you discover there are another five pages of that. So <laughs> if you do everything, so calm. Yeah. <laughs> Keep calm. Yeah, I've got, I've got a few of those as well. <laughs> exactly. So this is the different way that I work. And it depends from, from the piece, basically. Carlo, it is time for the 10 questions that every conductor loves to answer. Um, and I start with the first two. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Uh, don't worry. The sound or noise that I love, well, uh, obviously I'm not going to say that I love music because uh, musical sound, because that would be obvious. I like uh, very much the sound of silence in nature. Mm. I am lucky, even now I am uh, talking to you from uh, my house uh, in Italy, is uh, in the Humbrian Hills, and uh, is uh, very silent, uh, interrupted sometimes from some birds uh, or uh, the wind uh, between the tree. I say this not to be incredibly uh, sort of romantic, but uh, for me personally, living uh, all the time in uh, in a world that is made of uh, let's call it noise uh, the fact of being able to have some silence uh, 
and to hear the inner sound that I want to think of is fantastic. Mm. And uh, actually, uh, personally, just having uh, seen last night uh, the last David Attenborough documentary, you know, on Netflix about uh, uh, what the world is becoming, I think that uh, just really posing a uh, silence and hearing uh, uh, nature, uh, part of uh, our life of this planet is very important. Mm. Now, what do I hate? The sound that I hate? I hate people shouting. Mm. I hate, uh, although sometimes I do shout myself, <laughs> I hate music in the restaurants. Oh, don't we all? <laughs> that is something that should be a petition, a bill to the parliament to stop it. It's impossible. Uh, I mean, for us musicians, definitely, you know, this, this is a sort of uh, professional deformation. We cannot just be there and not think about what is going on. Mm. Oh, this is C major, 4-4, four, four, going to this, going to that. So that is already something that makes me not enjoy the meal. But I don't know how people do it. If you go out, you know, with uh, your partner or on a date or with a friend, you have to sign language sometimes because yes. you cannot. So that really, really, really I hate. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, um, generally I try to read. I like to read because um, I remember I was an avid reader when I, when I was at school. And then uh, I started to read much less because I didn't have the time. So I really like, like to read. If I would have been here... I would love to have some uh, works, definitely. Mm. We are not talking anything very energetic. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a marathon runner. Maybe that is something that I will, you know, that I will take up in my seventies. But uh, <laughs> and uh, and one thing that I actually like is to uh, do woodworking, to work oh, with right. wood. One of my grandfathers was uh, actually a carpenter, mm. and I always admire, you know, what he was doing for us, small things. And uh, I like to, you know, to go into. I have a little workshop here in Italy to do these things. I always put the earplugs, actually the earplugs, and then the big earplugs on yes. the on the on the. Huh? So that when I work with, uh, you know, like the saw the. I don't hear the noise, <laughs> but I like to work with food because it requires precision, it requires patience, and requires also artistry. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Well, <clears throat> conductor of yesterday, do we mean conductors that are dead? Or, uh, uh, yeah, dead or retired. So uh, not many conductors retire. So you're basically no, yes. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of I can think of one pretty famous one who's just retired. But other than that, um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're basically uh, of days gone by. So you know, dead uh, and you know, back through history. I I I have been uh, sometime. Uh, I feel that I I was um, I'm born in 1960 and I just missed a little bit uh, uh, of the time for the great uh, uh, what they call you know, the great conductors uh, you know Klemperer um, or uh, Toscanini was already dead but also the Gui the Sabata I never see Bernstein unfortunately live but I had the luck 
to see quite a lot of Carlos Kleiber. Ah, yes. And that, that for me, is the person that I, is the conductor that I rate more than, than most. I have been lucky to see live performances. I have been lucky to see actually rehearsals. Wow, that's that's rare. Well, yeah. yes, this didn't happen officially. It happened because I sort of sneaked, I sneaked in, sneaked in a sort of marine-like, uh, you know, on the floor, <laughs> trying to get only the eyes above the parapet of the chair. <laughs> because if he was seeing somebody, he was stopping conducting. Yeah, he would. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and that for me was uh, yeah 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 that 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 was a genius. It was a, it was a great great conductor, fantastic conductor. That has been my my huge experience really. Going on, uh, and some conductors find this very very difficult, and sometimes they choose to be repertoire specific. You know who who you mm-hmm. think is the best conductor or fa- a favorite conductor at period instrument or whatever. Excuse me. Who would be a favourite current conductor? Well, uh, this uh, this question, as you say, is very is very complicated because, um, well, it's very difficult also because, in a way, with conductors that are alive and performing, you always, as a conductor, measure yourself to them, mm. and so there are ways that. They do something that maybe you don't like, uh, you would do differently. That doesn't mean that they're not great conductors. So this is a very difficult question to answer. Um, I, I don't know what, uh, what to say about this. Uh, I actually um, have a great uh, uh, admiration for Philippe Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, very much and uh, also Nezatz again, I really like his way of conducting is um, what I what I like uh, in uh, in conductors uh, because you know now I'm sixty so obviously possibly there are more younger conductors than older conductors <laughs> than me unfortunately uh, I like to see in uh, in a younger conductor that passion that fire uh, not necessarily the the technical whiz kid that is great yeah that's fine um, and uh, obviously uh, sometime. Uh, um, they lack the experience, uh, mm. if you want. Mm. But uh, I, I like when the people they really sort of throw themselves uh, head first uh, into the music, uh, and with that enthusiasm uh, that is the fire that you have to have when you start the profession. So mm. that is, that is what I like. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, well, there are different ways of uh, of hard. Um, mm. Let me tell you technically what was the hardest work that I did it was to conduct in Bregenz. Mm. It was not particularly about well, I was conducting uh, Aida, but it was yeah. the situation that was very difficult uh, in Bregenz. Uh, Bregenz is an open air theater. Yes, is on the lake. So yes. there are seven thousand people. Then there is some water. Then there is the stage. Uh, where is the orchestra? The orchestra is in a building nearby. Where is the chorus? The chorus is in the same building, but in another room nearby. <laughs> and in my case, given that I was doing AIDA, where is the offstage band? Well, guess what? It's in the same building in another room again. Oh my the God. singers are on stage, and yes. on stage there is also a non-miked uh, 
sort of acting chorus. Mm. Now, from what I just said, uh, you can imagine what the uh, <laughs> what, what the difficult technically must have been. Oh, you know, gosh. when I conducted, I mean, thank God, uh, I, I you know I, I knew Aida from memory, so I did it without the score mm. because I had in front of me four different monitors. Yes. Behind me, I had two loudspeakers that were giving me the sound of the singers because the singer was outside and the singer saw me all outside you know in big monitors outside so did the chorus in the other room and the band in the, in the other room again technically it was really a challenge mm. the system mm. was actually very good but as you know there is something there is some delay that yeah. cannot be eliminated. It just cannot be eliminated. So to be able to compensate with this was a real, real challenge, technical challenge. And uh, I actually liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've conducted two operas. Both times, uh, the singers were behind me. Uh, or oh, yeah. Throughout the inter- no, not behind me. Behind me, uh, they were actually physically behind. No, no, me. no, no yeah. behind. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And they were watching me only on monitors. And both times the orchestra, I was studying. We were in the same room, at least. Yeah. But to learn to conduct to a monitor and to give somebody cues down a monitor, and you know when they're ru- when they're running slightly behind the actual orchestra, or they're rushing slightly, and you're having to look at it in a camera and go, for God's sake, stop rushing, or please sing faster. Yeah, I, I found found that quite difficult to get used to both times I did it. But as you said, when you get it right, the challenge, you think, oh, yeah, yeah. we really nailed that. That was wonderful. Um, yeah. 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 But from uh, uh, then another opera that I would like, another piece that I would like uh, to mention about being the hardest was actually Tristan and Isolde. Mm. Because... Uh, that just for the for the stamina, you know, that uh, that you needed, um, because um, as you know, there are basically three acts of one hour, one hour twenty each. Yes. And they, so, uh, you know, it's not music that you just uh, do la la la. Uh, it's music no, no. bar <laughs> as uh, as something, and uh, I was absolutely um, really tired very very tired at the end uh, you know and thank god they finished with the libestod that is a fantastic fantastic piece yes. but um that for me was the most difficult also from the emotional point of view um because of the story because uh, it's really it wipes, wipes you out mm. so i would say from the technical point of view was this experience in Bregen, and uh, from the more emotional point of view tristan dissolved when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I actually, now this sounds very, very silly. <laughs> I but, like uh, silly. Silly's good. <laughs> I always bring with me in my bag a sachet of lavender that I have harvested with my hands here mm. in this place where I am. And uh, I always with me because it reminds me of a place where I like, uh, where I really love to be, that is associated for me with, uh, you know, the part of me that I like more, mm. more relaxed, uh, more smiling, uh, less hectic, uh, because I have time here, uh, you know, with my wife and with my family. So this is what I always bring uh, with me. And, uh, you know, when things get difficult, uh, I take it out, I look at it. Uh, and uh, I think that is very, very nice. 
I don't think that's a silly answer. I think that's a beautiful answer. Um, if only we could all have, you know, something we could put in a sachet to remind us of a happy place. I think we'd all do it. But yeah, you obviously yeah. have. What a wonderful answer. Thank you. Um, number eight. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I wouldn't change a lot about being a conductor. I would change uh, the fact that, that I would love to be, like, say, 10 centimeters taller. <laughs> I really would love this <laughs> because, uh, um, yeah, um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not very, very short, but not. I'm not the tallest of people. And I think that being 10 centimeters taller would give me another perspective from a higher planet, let's say, <laughs> a higher planet. So, no, I mean, this is a little bit of a silly answer. Uh, but well, about it, has a, it has a serious point in the fact that you can see a little bit further onto the stage if you're conducting opera, you can see further uh, to absolutely. the back of the stage. And people and, can see you from the back of the stage more. <clears throat> yeah. You are absolutely right in that. In fact, very often, uh, exactly because of this, and also because you don't want to, to conduct you know, for three hours with your arm completely no, up, because no. it becomes uh, tiring. Uh, Sometimes I ask for a higher podium yeah. uh, you know and, and not because i'm a megalomaniac uh, but because i i need to be seen so i think that would be very useful 10 centimeters more <laughs> well a, a little story about working with somebody I, I i like working with very much is the violinist chloe hanslip uh, the first time we met was with the cbso's own youth orchestra uh, and we hadn't met before the rehearsal i don't think she arrived just in time and she walked into the rehearsal hall and I was stood on the podium and she was stood on the floor and I'm about six feet tall and she's <laughs> about four foot 11, maybe five foot. I don't, Chloe, if you're listening, you know, apologies if I've got it wrong. And she looked up at me, craned her neck up and said, right, either you get down off that box or somebody find me a taller box than you. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it is a serious point sometimes, you know, with podiums and height differences and the, yeah, um, no, it's a wonderful answer. Nobody else has given that answer. That's great. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, let's say in about 40 years uh, when I will retire, um, <laughs> pr probably what I, uh, I, I really would like to, to become very good uh, at uh, woodworking. Definitely mm -hmm. really would like to, to do that. Another thing that I could have done uh, if uh, I, I would... Um, not being a conductor, probably I would have become an academic, mm. not necessarily a teacher, because to be a teacher, you need also to have uh, social skills. <laughs> they don't necessarily have a lot of social <laughs> skills, but probably an academic. Uh, I would have done some research, uh, mm. uh, research work, but that is boring. Better <laughs> to become a, a carpenter. Yeah, better for you woodworking. My, my father, uh, since he's retired, has taken up or gone back to woodworking, but he's, he's taken up using a lathe to be able to make bowls and oh, yeah, candlesticks yeah, yeah. and things like that. And he loves it. You know, my, my mother says he spends hours out there. She never sees him. It comes back mm. smelling. But that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's the trick. That's the trick. Yeah, exactly. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Now, you don't know this, but it's the truth. Uh, this morning, I just had... Uh, a cooking lesson here <laughs> from uh, 
<coughs> a local cook mm. to learn some uh, Umbrian dishes because <laughs> this is something that I wanted to, to learn. Mm. And uh, so one thing that today I've done for the first time, and I would love it uh, to have uh, as my last meal would be tiramisu. Mm. That is actually funny if you think that I never drank a coffee in my life uh, and the tiramisu obviously has coffee. Mm. But, uh, you know, tiramisu, coffee in tiramisu is different from normal coffee. So that will be probably the, well, not the meal, but it would be the dessert. Mm. Uh, the meal is, uh, hey, has to be either pasta or pizza. There is mm. no, there's no way. And the antipasto would be about uh, three tons of cheese and bread. <laughs> so as you can see, I'm really very um, diet conscious. Uh, Obviously. In, uh, <laughs> After all, it's the last meal. Then we yes. are all going to explode. Yeah. For what is regarding drinks, uh, um, well, would be <laughs> an unalcoholic um, drink that uh, I was used to we were used to drink when we were small and I recently rediscovered called Quinotto. Uh, I don't know if this exists in, uh, in Britain. Don't think so. But basically, Quinotto is a slightly uh, bitter uh, citrus fruit. Oh. It's, it's a fruit that grows um, Sicily, for example. Mm. And they make this, uh, this drink. So that would be for the non-alcoholic uh, part of it. For the alcoholic drink, it would be the Italian grappa. Mm. That uh, is something that I love. It, some people say that is, a, <clears throat> how you say, an acquired taste. My wife hates it. Well, <laughs> her loss. Um, but uh, it would be grappa. So there we are. That sounds like a wonderful way to go out. Um, I think my father would love the cheese course. I'd definitely eat the pasta and pizza course. And my youngest daughter is a tiramisu fanatic. She absolutely loves tiramisu. Um, so, yeah, very, very, very good choice. Carlo, it's been a wonderful hour chatting to you. Um, and I hope after all of this we get to meet and we could maybe meet over a quinotto or a glass of grappa. Absolutamente. Thank you very much to you. It's been great talking to you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to an American conductor who won the Malco Conducting Competition in 2009. He is the music director of the Phoenix Orchestra of Boston, and is just coming to the end of his time as artistic director of the Lausanne Chamber Orchestra. He guest conducts all across the world, whilst finding time to write and host one of the most successful classical music podcasts. But until then... Bye-bye.